Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of EdTech Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. I'm glad you found us. And with me today, uh, an old friend and colleague, Andy Pass. Andy, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. It's, uh, we were just mentioning before the recording, we, at this time, we're usually uh, having a conversation either in the airport, I'm running into you in the airport or on the show floor of ISTE, or we're having a, a cup of coffee or a beer in person. Uh, it's been two years now uh, since we've been able to have that uh, opportunity, but looking forward to it coming up soon at ASU GSV, right? How, how have you done during the pandemic? How has business in? Just kind of give us an update. Things are good. Business is great. Um, my family has done well. Um, I had a minor bicycle accident at the beginning of the pandemic, um, but I'm getting back to life as normal. And in terms of the highlight, I guess, for our business is we acquired a new business in December of 2020. We acquired Victory Productions out of Boston. So it's really two companies has caused great strength. And it's, it's a question I've asked many of my guests, um, you know, especially during the depths of the pandemic in, in, in the wintertime and late fall. All I could do was remember my mask, right, to get to the supermarket and back. But uh, as that has occurred, you're acquiring companies, companies are going public, you know, the uh, customers have been accelerating. How can you explain um, not only just like a, the survival of the ed tech industry in general, but also the fact that it's thriving during this? How was it like doing business um, in this time? I mean, what? Was it, was it affected to, by you? Kevin, I would say that business grew. And the reason that business grew is because the needs of the world as they related to ed tech were growing. When schools were forced to go online in March, of 2020, they did not stop functioning. They changed functioning. And change always creates additional needs. And the schools themselves weren't able to fulfill all those needs. So they had to look out to the marketplace. And in the marketplace, as these changes occurred, Business has evolved. And as what always happens, when two businesses saw that they could do the same work in the same way as one company and accomplish more and make one plus one equal four from a business perspective instead of two, it just made sense to consolidate. Yeah. So, and well, and I'll make some assumptions about your business. So, uh, and you, you can give us a little bit of your cocktail party definition of what you do, but I know um, you were, had some remote aspects of your work before the pandemic. Um, am I right? I mean, you, you have yes. a large freelance staff uh, in, in terms of the creation of content. Maybe we'll go back, give us, give us that definition of, of what you do and, and how you do it. Okay. So 12 years ago, I made a decision that we would not have an office. So we are a completely virtual company. We have 2,400 associates. 
who are writers, editors, subject matter experts, structural designers, artists, production team members, and translators, translocalization experts. And we call them in when we have specific projects where we need them. So they're contractors. We have 26 full-time employees who all work out of their homes. And interestingly, people say, oh, you can't do this online. You can't do that virtually. For us, we've never done it anything but virtually and online. And I feel that there are very, very few things that you can't do remotely. So really, at the risk of sounding perhaps a bit arrogant, I would say that people are now recognizing what we recognized years ago, that virtual does not mean worse. It means slightly different. Yeah, yeah. So in many ways, maybe your work didn't change that much because of the, of the pandemic then. It got more work because of it. More work, yeah, yeah. But it didn't change the structure and the processes did not change one bit. Interesting, interesting. Uh, so it, I don't have to ask you the question if you're going to go back to normal because it has continued to be normal. That's correct. That's good no, stuff. we're not coming back to an office because the fact of the matter is when people ask me where my office is, I often take my phone out of my pocket and show it to them. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. Well, I know that there, obviously, everyone has been uh, severely affected because of the pandemic, but not only because of the pandemic, but other events of, of 2020 that not only in the education space, but in the industry space in general. Um, talk a little bit about your content and the, the content that you create and whether there may have been changes in the way that you're approaching your content um, going going forward or as a result of, of what's been happening in events beyond just COVID? Well, Kevin, as a company, we are a service provider. And what that means is we take the specifications and objectives of our clients, make them our own, and become their back office content development center. But I would say when it comes to thinking about content and how to develop content, I realized this past year, more than any other in my life, what diversity and inclusion. And you know, I went to Columbia University in New York in, or in the late 80s, early 90s. In order to walk around, you necessarily walked past people who did not have I, as a student, had and what my classmates had. They were lucky if they could find a place on the ground to sleep. I also majored in political science, which obviously has something to do with equity and inclusion. But it didn't dawn on me just what equity meant in as powerful of a way then as it did this past year. Because you're literally hearing stories of students who can't even go to school because they don't have online access or a computer. They're not going to fall behind. They're going to fall to zero mm. if they can't get online and they can't learn. 
And that's just a scary thought. And then to think about what APAS educational group has, 2,400 contractors from a huge array of differences who can help contribute to the content. Evan, one of the things that I'm most proud of, ironically, as, the, as ironic as this might sound, is I'm a Zionist. I strongly believe in the state of Israel. I've been there many, many times. And one of our leading contractors lives in Gaza City. And I am so, I mean, the, so the, the tension between Gaza and Israel is enormous, obviously. I mean, there's real fighting and loss of life going on all the time because there isn't communication between the people, the leadership of the people of Israel and the people of Gaza. So this one guy who lives in Gaza City and is often commended for the quality of his work. And by the way, we are primarily a United States company. Mm. We don't offshore much work. This guy is just able to function at the capability of the typical American. Is just such a huge, good feeling for lack of a better word. Sure. And I sure. think that though that diversity needs to go into the development of content. So um, give some other examples. That's, a, that's certainly a powerful one, but give us an example within, say, your, your customer set. So you've been, you're providing content to both K-12 as well as, as higher ed, right? Yes. Um, and when you're developing a piece of curricula, uh, talk a little bit about maybe how going forward those conversations may change as a result of some of the, the changes that have been going on? Well, you need to understand that different students bring different mental models and schema to their work. And my staff both recognizes that and lives that. For example, if you're writing something about the ocean for some literary passage, you can't assume that everybody's seen an ocean or been into the ocean. You can't assume that everybody's seen farmland. For that matter, as crazy as the sound, you can't assume that everybody knows what a stoplight. You need to be extremely careful when you're writing content that you're not demanding the possession of knowledge to understand the content mm. or to succeed on an assessment project that isn't being evaluated. So you can't test unknowingly on what a beautiful sunset is if the students have never seen a beautiful sunset because they're stuck in the middle of an urban setting. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. And it's uh, inspiring me to think about some other conversations I've had surrounding the use of artificial intelligence uh, when it comes to not only content creation, but also assessment, right? Um, 
Have, do you have any thoughts about how the new technologies can help enable the creation of content and in some of the examples that you just gave to where maybe questions can be tailored more specifically? I mean, here's the phrase, right? Personalized learning. It's this theoretical phrase that we've heard for 15 years in, in, in education and specifically ed tech. Are we at a stage now where that doesn't have to be a theory, but it may be a practical reality? I don't know. And the reason that I don't know is because I think something like virtual reality can really help eliminate some inequity to some extent. Yeah. For example, I'm not going to allow someone to actually see a beautiful sunset or experience sailing on the ocean. But the feeling can be that. The question is, will the use of virtual reality extend deeply enough into the school system that all students will be able to have those goggles and use it? Will the technology get disseminated? There are still many schools where students don't have access to high quality computers or tablets or even online access at all. So in order for that technology to make a difference, it has to be accessible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems, you know, with the announcements um, this summer of the, uh, you know, the Federal Emergency Aid Act and the, the monies that are coming through there, along with really kind of the, uh, the largesse of the ed tech industry in terms of subsidizing act access uh, from the AT&Ts and the Comcast of the world, there seems to be a, a, at least a genuine attempt to address this issue. Uh, how do you handicap that going forward? Do you, uh, are you in a generally positive mood about it? Or uh, I've heard some skepticisms whether we're, it's going to kind of come back to being the old normal, which was not um, that good in the first place. Really good question. One of the first things that I think about when you ask the question is the fact in so, that in some urban centers, you have warehouses sitting with new textbooks that have never been properly distributed students. And so my question is, will the logistical systems be set up so that the technology and the largesse is able to be distributed across the school system? If it is, then we're going to move forward. We're never going to return to what was because you never do return to what was. The experience of the pandemic, the interlude of the last year or two is here. It's been here. Teachers have learned from it. Will they try new things? Hopefully. But even if they don't try new things, subconsciously, their practice is going to have evolved. 
right? I do. I, I do agree with you there that uh, it's not going to be a conscious thing. I mean, that even just the way we're communicating right now through Zoom, we would have never set ourselves up to have a conversation like this. I mean, we would have been on, on the phone, right? We wouldn't have used video conferencing in order to do it. Uh, I would have never a million years as a parent had the number of one-to-one -one conversations I've had with my kids' teachers over the, over the past year. And I think teachers in a lot of ways, and you know, there was always this percentage of users or customers who were not very enthralled with the technology, right? The, those teachers that we, we called them thwatties, this is the way I've always done it and I'm gonna continue to do it. Like this is how I teach chemistry and this is how we're gonna go forward. After March of 2020, no one was able to have that luxury. Everyone had to pivot. Everyone had to change. Uh, and I don't think there is going back. I, I agree. Uh, whether they think they're going back or not. Even if we are back in person, there are still going to be behaviors learned here um, that will stick. And I think that's for the better. I think leadership is going to be fundamentally important as to whether or not teachers are encouraged and taught and resources are provided that enable them to take advantage of the things they learned in the last couple of years in a positive direction. Because there are going to be differences. They need to be led to make those differences positive. Yep, yep. And I knew the, the, the toughest part of our conversation here would be to end it because we could uh, go on. There's so many different interesting aspects of, of the work that you do and the issues that we that we're dealing with but um, maybe we'll just finish off with maybe a um, you know hopefully a glass half full uh, prediction uh, let's let's put things in a best case scenario uh, the monies get out the textbooks get out of the warehouses um, and we start to see some real changes uh, what sort of horizon do you see that happening i mean is are we talking about a three-year horizon is it a five-year i mean is, just kind of give us your crystal ball uh, of a best case scenario best case scenario is that with the money coming out now in the next 24 months the foundation is laid for students to learn in school the way that they learn outside of school where they can access technology, responding to challenges as they occur in an organic learning style. I would definitely envision walking into a classroom of the middle school level, maybe even early high school or later high school, seeing students laying on the ground, seeing students as masters of their own learning that are guided by teachers on the side, and if one student is doing something one way, another student can be doing something in a completely different way, but they're both developing deep knowledge and skills. I really think that technology can support that. And society will be so much better off because students will be empowered. And as students are empowered to control their own learning, they'll become happier people. Some of the major problems that we currently have in schools, thinking shootings, will become less frequent as student esteem 
becomes more common. And that we need to leave for a second podcast because you're right. That is such a, one of the biggest pivots that I've seen is a, a focus that on social emotional learning and the importance of not only that, but more general mental health and that where before those things were maybe nice to have or focused on students that had extreme needs. Now, because we've all been through this group trauma, there's an understanding that we all need to have a certain amount of mental health assessment and help, uh, and as well as developing content and developing techniques where students feel safe and, and secure. Because if you don't have that, you're not going to learn anything anyway, right? But uh, exactly. Uh, hey, this has been a great conversation, Andy. Uh, so many things covered. Obviously, so many other things to, to cover later. Hopefully, we'll be doing it in person in a few weeks at ASU GSV, and we'll have that coffee or, or, or that beer, and um, we'll, we'll plan out our next conversation. Sounds great, Kevin. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening or watching, however you're consuming this particular piece of content. Again, I'm Kevin Hogan. I'm glad you found us, and I hope you click around and find another episode soon.